Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining me here live tonight on Golf Talk Live, uh, another Thursday evening. And as normal, we're going to start out here in just a moment or two with a, a great round uh, on Coach's Corner with, a, uh, of course, a, a couple of great guys on the panel. And I'm going to introduce both of them here in just a second. Uh, and then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be joined by uh, special guest Greg Ortman. He's a Ph.D., and also a PGA uh, professional and uh, a golfologist. Uh, we'll talk to him a little bit about that and about his revised book. He uh, came up with a book a few years ago uh, called Golfology, Common Sense versus Golf Sense, A Common Sense Approach to Learning Golf. Uh, and this is the newly revised and updated third edition of the book. So he's going to come back on. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the changes and just uh, some other great information that's uh, in the book for you. Uh, folks out there that are learning to play the game, or maybe some of you that have been playing for a little while need a little reboot, if you will. So we'll talk to Greg uh, a little bit later on in the show. Um, also, don't forget, uh, as always, uh, this season, uh, Coach's Corner is sponsored by Golfswing.com, a great uh, group of uh, people out in the Dallas, Texas area. And uh, just a really honored and, and uh, grateful for uh, their sponsorship of the uh, Coach's Corner segment. Uh, golfswing.com with its uh, cutting-edge technology have teamed up uh, with some of the best instructors, uh, coaches, and swing gurus in the golf business. Uh, together, they have created one of the top video teaching and training online platforms in golf. So if you're ready to break 100, 90, 80, or even 70, then join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. Sign up today and watch, practice, and improve your game. And don't forget to add promo code GOLFTALKLIVE at checkout and receive 50% off the subscription price. So go to uh, golfswing.com at the end of the show and make sure you sign up tonight. And don't forget to add promo code GOLFTALKLIVE. All right. Uh, as I said, we've got a great uh, show tonight. We're going to be starting off here uh, with Coach's Corner. Let me just introduce the guys and uh, and then we'll get into tonight's discussion. Uh, first up, of course, uh, a regular on uh, Coach's Corner is the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf LLC, uh, which of course houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and the Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. And this gentleman has been teaching over the past 30 plus years and uh, has become a good friend of mine. And of course, I'm talking about Pete Buchanan. Uh, also, rounding out the panel tonight, very grateful that he jumped in again uh, this week. He was on last week. Uh, of course, I'm talking about another great friend, uh, John Decker. Uh, he's the instructor uh, with GolfSwing.com and a motivational speaker. Uh, also, a former teaching professional at the New Albany Country Club and the 2015 Southern Ohio excuse me, Ohio Teacher of the Year, uh, prior head instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando, uh, where he worked under top 100 uh, instructors, Fred Griffin and late Phil Rogers. Uh, he's also the author of the book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which of course has an accompanying Bible study. Uh, John and, and Pete, uh, welcome guys to Coach's Corner. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Good to be here. All right, I appreciate it. We always have a good time here and uh, uh, tonight will be no different. 
Um, and let me just uh, very quickly remind everybody, of course, on Thursdays we are live. Uh, it is a live broadcast from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. Uh, for those of you in the Central time zone, and Eastern, of course, is 7 to 9, uh, and Pacific is 4 to 6. Uh, so if you go to blogtalkradio.com and type in Golf Talk Live, that will take you to the main page, and you can uh, listen to us front and center. But for some reason, if you can't, uh, just go to that link anytime after the show, Golf Talk, or, sorry, blogtalkradio.com. Again, type in Golf Talk Live and just scroll down uh, to the on-demand section, and you can listen to all of the previously aired shows uh, in their entirety there. Uh, and also, at the end of the show, uh, I'll tell you some other great ways that you can tune in as well, uh, some other great social media platforms. Uh, they can pick up the broadcast as well. But, uh, again, thank you guys uh, for joining me here on, on Coach's Corner. All right, I'm going to start out, uh, Pete, if you don't mind, with you. And, uh, and then, John, uh, I'll, uh, I'll jump over to you here in a second. Um, the phrase hitting bad shots, uh, we hear all the time from many of our students. You know, I hit a bad tee shot. I've hit a bad, uh, you know, shot to the green, uh, out of the bunker, what have you. Um, but sometimes it's not always a bad thing. Um, you might be scratching your head if you're listening to the show. What do you mean it's not a bad thing? Well, Pete, what can we learn from our failures on the golf course? I think there's a learning opportunity when we do hit bad shots. Maybe give us an example of, of some of the students that you've worked with where, you know, they've hit some bad shots, but you were able to uh, turn it into a positive experience and help them uh, uh, to make some better shots uh, down the road. Well, that's a... That's a great way to start. Um, you know, <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, first of all, I, I'd really like to see what their definition of a bad shot is. I mean, a lot of times, you know, it, it may look like it's, you know, maybe the contact wasn't as great, but the ball ends up, you know, semi in play. So, you know, realistically, it's not as bad as they thought. But, you know, what I always try to do is if you're playing a par four, uh, you don't have to write down five until you've hit the fourth one. So there might be a bad shot in there, but you can always recover from that. And so, you know, you need to look at, at really the overall, you know, basis of what you're trying to achieve and also understand if you do have some bad shots, you need to learn from them. What, what are they telling you? So if you right. hit one on the golf course, you know, just like you hit one when you're practicing, if you hit a bad shot, I mean, I, I train all my players to really understand for themselves cause and effect so if they do hit a, a bad one they can fix it you know they can make sure they do something on the next one to, to you know not have that same thing repeat but I think more than anything else um, you know I try to get them to realize there, there's going to be some shots as they play that you know aren't going to be up to speed to what they think but it doesn't mean right. it has to ruin your score you know I mean you've, you've seen those holes where you you know somebody pops a couple on the ground and they pitch it in from 90 yards so I mean still a three so, you know, you have to you have to take the good with the bad because there there are going to be some of each every time you play. And so, you know, as long as you can learn from what those bad ones are telling you and not let them frustrate you and not let them, uh, you know, get you down, you can still come around with a pretty good score uh, as long as you understand what they're telling you. Yeah, well said. Um, John, you know, sometimes uh, in the old golf bag, in addition to the clubs, uh, we've got a few bad shots in there. Um, and, you know, although, as, as Pete pointed out, it's not always pretty, and sometimes it, it doesn't have as bad of a result as some people might think. Um, but there certainly uh, definitely can be some learning opportunities here. So um, I don't know if you've got an example. Maybe you can think of uh, maybe a more recent one, perhaps, uh, where you've had a student that's, you know, put it together a couple of bad shots, 
and you use that as an opportunity for them to learn from that. Well, first of all, Ted, thanks again for having me on the show. And Pete, I'm, I'm as always, enjoy being on with you. Um, I love this question because um, I often talk to my students about bad shots on the golf course. And, and the first thing I tell them is the most important decision that you will make in golf is the decision that you have to make after you've hit a poor shot. Because uh, many times you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in a fairway bunker. You're going to be in the trees. You might hit it in the hazard. You might hit it out of bounds. And how are you going to react to that? Are you going to get upset? Are you going to get mad? Are you going to try to hit a ball through 12 trees to get back into the fairway? Um, are you going to do something, you know, to run up your score? So the decision quite often is the problem because you don't want one shot to lead to two shot, two bad shots or three bad shots or three or four bad holes in a row. So I think more than anything, um, you know, and I tell all of my students, you're going to make a bad swing. Everyone makes a bad swing on the golf course, even the tour players. If you're, if you're hitting, you know, bad shot after bad shot for 18 holes, then obviously that's something that's got to be fixed in a lesson. But most often I, I really try to focus on the mindset of getting back into play. You know, how is the best way, like Pete was saying, there's a lot of different ways to make a par. You don't have to hit it down the fairway, on the green, and two-putt. You can go from fairway bunker to the rough to on the green to making a 20-foot putt. That's, that's a way that you could make, make a par on a par four. So I think the mindset is so important because I, you can have, and I see it all the time with these kids that are really good amateur players. They're high school players, college players, and they got these fantastic golf swings. But they hit one bad shot, and it leads to a bad uh, set, uh, the next shot is bad and it leads to a, a string of bad shots because they haven't got their mindset right. So that's a very important thing that takes a lot of maturity and it's very difficult to do because, um, you know, I, I was, I struggled with that when I was younger myself. So uh, I, I really think the mindset is, is so important when you make a bad swing on the golf, on the golf course. Yeah. Well said uh, as well, John, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've always, thought about when you know when we do these uh, coaches corner segments and that is really to look at it from the golfer's perspective and not so much uh, uh, the teaching pros uh, perspective and you know John as you pointed out you know the mindset is is equally as important as the physicality of, of the shot itself and you know the, the real word that that I pull out of this you know tonight's question is is learn you know it's a learning experience and i think that you know every from you know high handicapper right down to uh you know your advanced touring pro is going to have a couple of bad shots in their bag but the difference is the pros have learned how to handle that situation john as you pointed out and are able to recover and move on they're not thinking about that bad shot they might in the moment but it, it passes very quickly. They may even talk about it uh, post-round. Um, but the idea is they've learned over time to expect that there's going to be some bad shots depending on conditions and so forth. So I think it's preparedness, not only you know, on the lesson tee to, to prepare, you know, to hitting good shots and that, but preparing when those shots aren't going to be as good as we hope, uh, how we handle that. So uh, great points, uh, both of you guys. Um, Pete, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, on this one here, and you know, I mentioned about having some bad shots uh, in the golf uh, bag. Well, something else is uh, 
is 14 clubs. Uh, we're allowed 14 clubs in the bag, um, according to the rules. Um, but my question to you is, and we've heard this discussion before through a lot of different people on, on various sources, but do beginners particularly, and I'm, I want to focus on beginners here, um, do they really need them all? I mean, just because we can have 14 clubs in the bag, do we really need them? Especially some of our beginners that aren't that great out in the golf course yet. Um, can they maybe leave a few of them aside? Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, what your thoughts are there, if, you know, uh, if that's something that maybe would also help with slow play. Well, first and foremost, I think the, the newer players all need loft, uh, something that's going to help them control the ball a little bit easier. Um, and so I don't think they need all 14, but they definitely need some uh, a variety for some of the different shots they're going to you know, come across and have to hit. But um, I would stay away from the, the, the straight-faced ones at the beginning. You know, it, nowadays we've got more hybrids to take care of all the, the longer irons in replacement for that with more pitch on them. So I think more than anything else, it's just giving them, you know, essentially some things to, to you know, play each part of the game, something to drive it off the tee with some pitch to it, you know, several irons for the fairways, and then, you know, making sure they have some wedges so they can play some shots around the green. And um, so, no, I don't think they need all 14. And, you know, it's kind of a question. You can go both ways with this. If if you're a club manufacturer, you want them to have 28. So you, know, you want to sell more <laughs> clubs. But I right. think – you know, more than anything else, as you're starting out, I think you just need a few, but particularly, you know, getting some with, with more pitch, which I think will definitely help uh, create an easier atmosphere of, of being able to control the ball, um, get the ball up in the air and make it easier for, you know, the new players to, to start that way. And then once they get some more control over it, you can start introducing other clubs back into it. Yeah. And, and John, great, great point, by the way, uh, Pete, thank you. Um, you know, John, the reason why I pose this question is because we see um, so often our amateurs, you know, when they come up to their ball, uh, obviously not on the on the tee, but, uh, you know, the fairway or in the rough, and they're scratching their head because they're confused with the yardage, they're confused with, you know, what what's the best club to use. And, you know, when you've got so many options available to you, uh, obviously, our better players, uh, you know, can can take in that information and make decisions a little bit quicker. But for some of our, our high handicapper or beginning golfers that maybe haven't advanced, I think what Pete's talking about is here, maybe we can do with uh, a few less clubs in there initially, as long as, again, as he pointed out, that they have some loft um, to help them uh, get the ball in the air, um, and then maybe gradually put some of them back in as, as they progress. What are your thoughts on that? 14 clubs in the bag, is, is that a, a, a staple? Do we need to stick to that, particularly for beginners, or is there some room for flexibility? No, I, I agree with Pete. Um, I, in fact, I, had, I got an email today. It's funny that you brought this question up. I got an email from a student today who I've, been, I've given, uh, I think, three lessons to, and he's doing really well. He's really excited. But he, want, he said in our next lesson on Saturday – he wants to talk about his clubs because I, he said, I, he goes, I don't want to carry 14 clubs. I only want to carry 11 because I don't have to make as many decisions between them. And I, and I told him that's perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. Um, really, you don't, need, uh, you don't need 14 clubs if you're going to play recreational golf. You need something that you can drive with, a driver. You do need a driver uh, or a three-wood uh, to hit something that you can you know, t- put on a tee and hit. 
you need one club that you can hit your long shots with. I call it your go-to club. So a lot of your newer players are hitting a drive, and then they're going to their go-to club, and they're going to their go-to club, and then they go with their with some sort of short iron. I really believe the the longest iron for the average golfer needs to be a seven iron, and then you need to have um, a, a, some sort of sand wedge or lob wedge, and obviously a putter. So with that being said, if you have a driver, you have either a hybrid or a fairway wood, like a seven wood that has a lot of loft on it, uh, or even a nine wood, something that you can hit off the ground uh, to hit the longer shots. And then you have your seven iron to your wedges and a putter. I think you're you're good to go. And, and, and it really does. And not only is it less decisions, it's less clubs that you have to carry around. It, it, you don't have to spend as much money. Uh, it's just uh, for, for the newer recreational golfer, I think it's an easier way to go. Yeah, I, I agree as well. You know, and just something interesting of note, and I've mentioned this on before. In fact, when he was a guest on the show, of course, I had uh, Wally Armstrong on, and, and uh, both of you may or, or may not be familiar with him, but uh, he was uh, one of the original guys on the Golf Channel when it first started out. He uh, did a lot of different lessons. And one of the things that he did was was really, really interesting. He's, he played three holes, uh, a par three, four, and five, but he played it with a seven iron, a pitching wedge, and a putter, and ended up shooting for the three holes, uh, one under par. And what was interesting was he didn't have a driver, didn't have any long irons. The longest iron he had, is, as you, John, uh, pointed out, was a seven iron. And it took him three shots to get to the par five, but nevertheless, you know, he was on there and putting for birdie. So a lot of times I think, you know, our am- amateurs particularly, or high handicappers, you know, want to pull out that big stick. And I, and I agree that the courses are, are a little bit longer now than, than what they were. But sometimes, you know, equipping yourself smarter based on your abilities is going to produce and yield a, a better uh, return, if you will. And I think sometimes get caught up in all this technology, um, you know, having the latest, greatest driver and all this kind of stuff. And I, I understand the importance of that. But, you know, a good hybrid um, or even a fairway wood as your, as your predominantly tee uh, club, if you will, and then maybe another hybrid or something, like you said, John, a seven or nine iron or nine, um, you, know, to, um, you know, to help get the, the ball in the air. So there's a lot of flexibility there. And it's an interesting question because, again, it comes into, as I mentioned briefly, is with slow play. I mean, you know, when you've got 14 clubs in the bag to choose from, there's a lot of our golfers out there that really don't know how to hit them all, aren't utilizing them to their full capacity, and are only playing with a handful of clubs anyways. And so when they've got to keep deciding and they're lugging that stuff around, um, you know, it, it, slow play comes in, and that's a big issue. and has been for, for quite some time. Um, interesting perspective, guys, uh, on, on, the, uh, on the question, and I appreciate, uh, as always, your, your thoughts and input into it. Um, John, I'm going to go to you this time. I'm going to give Peter a little bit of a break, come back to you. Um, this is an interesting question as well. We've uh, touched on this a little bit before, but um, we've got two sides of the brain, the left analytical and the right side, the intuitive. Uh, and they're very, very different. Um, and just to give you an example, I'm taking this actually out of uh, uh, Greg's book tonight. Uh, certainly we've talked about this before, but you know, our, our right side, if you will, uh, you know, gives us a, a common sense uh, standpoint, our intuition, creativity, and imagination, if you will. Uh, also, our emotions are, are uh, done there. From the golfing perspective, uh, helps us with, the, you know, estimating distances, visualizing the flight of the ball, and obviously 
uh, handling trouble shots and things like that. Um, and our, our feel, touch, and tempo are also, uh, you know, controlled by the, the right side. And our left side, of course, is analytical. Uh, that's where we analyze things uh, and, and a common sense factor, uh, our verbal ability, uh, computation logic, that sort of thing. Um, and the golf sense size, playing conditions, uh, alignment, aim, attention to details, pre-shot ritual, uh, even club selection. I want you to just, again, I don't want to get into a, an overly deep conversation here, but I, I think it's important because people don't understand uh, or get stuck on one side or the other um, and don't realize that both sides of the brain have to be active when making decisions on the golf course. So just touch a little bit of your understanding on how it works and when is the right or appropriate time to engage one side or the other. And I know it's obviously done at a subconscious level, but I think you understand well, what I'm getting this at. Is a, this is a great question because um, I'm going to talk as a teacher working with a student. If I have a student who is extremely analytical, if I get someone and they say they're an engineer from MIT, the last thing that I want to do is give them a lot of complex information because that is not going to help them in their golf game. What they have to do is I believe that you need to have a balance. You have to they you have to develop. I want them to instead of thinking about every single angle in the golf swing, I want to give them drills. I want to get them out of their comfort zone of what they're used to doing and try to teach them to play with more feel. Like if I was working with DeChambeau, that's what I would do with him. He is way too analytical for uh, what you're seeing on the PGA Tour right now, and that's why all the slow play stuff came up. Um, I would try mm -hmm. to do things more where he's playing more reactionary. On the other hand, if I get someone who is a musician or someone who is really a field player who just walks up, I have a kid that, that I've worked with that he won't, he won't make a practice swing, he won't pick a target, and he, but he's got great feel and great – he can hit the shots, but he doesn't do it in the right order. So I try to develop the, the – you know, for him, the left side of the brain, okay, we've got to get behind the ball, we have to pick a target. I get more into the, the technical stuff with him. Because I believe if you're going to be a, a great player, you need to have a balance. I think that, I think that there, through history, you'll see that more of the top players in the world are probably more on the right side than the left side. Uh, and the left side uh, people tend to end up being teachers and going the route that I've gone and, and Pete's gone. Um, and, and I don't know about Pete, whether he's right or left side. But, but I think that as teachers, I see more of that as from my perspective. But I think to have a balance is important because you don't want to be out there analyzing every single position in your golf swing. But then again, you don't want to be out there not just with no pre-shot routine, not thinking about your yardage, not thinking about the wind and just saying, Oh, here's the ball. There's the flag. I'm going to hit it at the flag. It's got to be, there has to be that balance. And so I like to ask a lot of questions, find out. I think the, the uh, information gathering process, the interview process of your student is critical to it, especially when you have a new student, uh, so that you understand how they think. And once you understand how they think, the more I know about how you think, the better I can be as a teacher. Right. Well said. And, and Pete, just to, to, to touch on a little bit more, you know, what happens with a lot of golfers, I think, and, and as I said, I know we've, we've touched on not to the same extent as we're here tonight, but um, you know, we've talked about sort of the analytical side and, and, um, and the, you know, the touch and the feel side, if you will. Um, but Cindy Miller, who, of course, uh, helps uh, co-host on the Women of Golf on Tuesday mornings with me, 
you know, she really, really studies this and really applies it to her students because a lot of times, and even to her own game, you know, a lot of times we get out there and, and uh, when we should be engaging one side of the brain, we're often engaging the other. And as, as John just pointed out, it, it gets a lot, very confusing for a lot of people. Uh, some get very analytical in that. Um, and, and I know it's kind of a deep topic and, and people, are, again, are probably scratching their head and saying, well, what do I need to know all this? But I think sometimes having an understanding of how we approach things, regardless of what it is, whether it's golf or otherwise, I think um, helps us in the long run when we can sort of unpack things in, in its proper order. Um, just touch a little bit on it, Pete, if you want, um, maybe just to add on to what John said or, or what have you. Well, you know, I, I agree a lot with what John said. You know, I'm, <clears throat> for to answer your question, John, I'm more of a field player more than anything else, although I understand uh, the analytical side of it because I've studied it. So uh, I agree with your balance wholeheartedly. There definitely has to be a balance, and there has to be some routine to what they do. I don't think they can just, you know, run through the round without having some kind of routine that they go through because I think to a certain extent, <clears throat> pardon me, it helps them settle down, and it helps them, uh, not get to rushing and not get to, to strain away from what they're trying to do. Um, it was funny, John, that you mentioned engineers because my son's an engineer, and I basically explained ball flight to him, and I said, all right, go ahead, ball flight cause and effect. I said, I'm not telling you anything else. Go figure it out. And he did. <laughs> so, you know, you can utilize that side of, of what they're right. all about, you know, and and begin to – you know, let them thrive on their own that way. But I also agree that sometimes you got to take them out of their comfort zone. You know, doing 17 plus years of golf schools, you know, we ran across every type of personality and person you could you could come across. And and yeah, there are certain types of people, doctors, lawyers, they're black and white. They're very analytical, and you know, you have to get them out of their comfort zone to make golf a little bit easier for them because they just they see one side all the time and they they can't see the other. And so. Yeah, there definitely has to be a balance to it. Um, you know, uh, for me, for myself, you know, looking at the students, um, I love to uh, do what my dad used to do. Used to do it was the question test. So every time I ask them a question and they answer it, I always ask them another question. So I keep asking them yep. questions until I get the information that I need, so that I can understand more of how they think. Um, you know, also too, you know, I have some that they go sick thousand miles a minute and i got some that takes them 25 minutes to get the three stalls down there to hit balls so you know you've got right. different ways of how they move how they talk some are very slow some are very fast so you have to weigh all these things in there so that you know you don't get them too far out of their comfort zone but also that you can make it so you can balance it out uh, to get them more well-rounded because I, I do agree with john that the, the most well-rounded you know on both sides of thinking i think are the best players yeah, well said. Um, you know, it's an interesting um, point, I think, really to cover because, you know, I can think of a number of, of players uh, on, on the PGA Tour particularly that, you know, fell into one side or the other particularly or more dominant in one side. Um, Nick Faldo comes to, to mind. You know, he was a very analytical player, um, you know, even though he, he talks about, you know, he, he liked to feel certain things. Um, he really analyzed probably – almost to a fault, uh, his golf swing. I mean, things had to be, he had certain checkpoints throughout the swing and that, you know, uh, had to get into that slot. And if it wasn't, you know, he would continue to grind it out on the range until he did. And I remember when he first started working with David Ledbetter and of course Ledbetter was 
um, really instrumental in changing Faldo's uh, swing around from, from what it used to be years ago on the, on the European tour. Uh, and of course, he went on to win six, six majors. Um, you know, he was a very analytical player uh, in a lot of ways. And, but he was still able to balance it out a little bit with, with feel. And that's important. Another one that didn't have as, as good of an outcome was Ian Baker Finch. Um, you know, there was a point, he was very analytical as well uh, at times. And ultimately, uh, you know, that old saying, uh, paralysis by analysis. Uh, he was one that ended up going into the, uh, you know, into the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the uh, announcer's booth uh, because his game just uh, got stymied. He just got to a point where he couldn't handle himself out in the golf course anymore because he analyzed himself to death, basically. Um, so it, it's a very interesting topic, and I know we'll we'll talk about it more here and there as as time goes on, but uh, it's just something that I think a lot of people really need to think about. Um, here's something else, too, guys, that, uh, and, and Pete, I'm going to come back to you on this. Um, another thing, you know, we've got our amateur golfers and we've got our professional golfers, and each of them have uniquely different uh, short and long-term goals uh, that help them to play their, their best golf. Um, maybe give some examples uh, of, of each. And let's start with our amateur golfer, Pete. Um, what might, in, in your, um, from your perspective, and we'll, we'll take it from the coach's perspective, what might, in the case of an amateur golfer, might some of their short-term goals be, or should be, let's say? Well, I think what we have to really look at from an amateur standpoint, first of all, is, you know, how much time are they going to have to spend at it? I mean, the pros obviously have the time because that's what they do for a living. And so I think you have to weigh a little bit of, you know, the time that they're going to be able to have to practice and play. And then from there, you know, balance out the, the short-term goals with that. I mean, you know, I, I hate to have an amateur that, that doesn't have much time to, to really spend at golf during the weekend. They spend that all the time practicing. Well, get them on the golf course to play. So, I think a short-term goal would be to, you know, make sure they have the fundamentals of cause and effect down and, you know, make sure that they're, they're on the golf course, you know, playing as much as they can uh, so that they can learn in situations and learn how to make those, those things work. Um, so I, I think a goal is to, you know, to be able to find themselves as far as, you know, practice and, and how much they can spend on that, uh, but also weighing that off on, you know, making sure that they don't take away from, the time to play uh, as often as they can as well. But um, I'm not sure that's the way you want to be to go with that. But, yeah. Uh, that's the way I would. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Um, no, that's perfect. And, and what about, um, uh, John, uh, let's stick with the amateur for a second, then we'll, then we'll I'll come back to both of you on the pro golfers. Um, what about long-term goals for our amateur? I mean, obviously, you know, Pete talked about really, you know, sort of understanding uh, and 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 working with the fundamentals and, and getting a good base to, to work from, if you will. But they need to have some long-term goals as well if they want to continue to play. And obviously, it depends on their, their why, why they're there in the first place. If they're just out to, you know, be an occasional weekend warrior uh, or an occasional golfer and not necessarily a weekend warrior, um, you know, they may not really care. But for someone that really wants to see improvement over some longevity, they need to have some long-term goals. So what might some of those be for amateur golfers? Well, if you're starting out with a, a new player, a beginner, um, you want to get them to the point where they can their their long-term goal would be where they can go out and play nine or 18 holes of golf with their partner or with their friends or whoever. Uh, if they're a more established player, let's say they've been playing for 10 years, 
uh, and they're a 30 handicapper. Uh, then, then I, I then my what I you know basically judge when I'm judging and working with amateurs. One of the first questions I ask them if I know that they're a player, they're not a beginner, is what is your handicap? And then I say, okay, a realistic handicap, and I break it down season by season. I say this year, like if we're in March or or April, I say our goal this year is to go from from a 30 to a, a 25 or 26. And a lot of this will be based on, like Pete said, you know, if they tell me that they only play golf, you know, three times a year, then then there's no goals to be set. If if somebody says to me, I only play golf three times a year, my goal for you is to play five times in the year. Uh, because right. you're not going to improve your golf, you're not going to improve your golf game if you're only playing three times a year. But if they're if they're willing to put forth the effort and they're willing to take the lessons, because the you to to make those kind of leaps where you're going to go from a 30 to a 25, which is attainable, but it requires you practice, you take the lessons, you get on a program, and then at the end of the year you reassess. Okay, did we get to the 25? Maybe we got to a 27. All right, well next year. We're going, you know, we're going to, here's our winter program. These are the things that we need to work on in the winter, strength, conditioning, whatever, flexibility. And then we go from there the, the, the following year. So I kind of break it down season by season with my better amateur players, like the, the kids that are like college kids or high school kids or people that, that are looking to eventually try to turn professional. I'm breaking it down to like, let's look at your fairways hit. Let's look at your greens and regulation. We're getting more into the fine point finer points of of the game because you know if if somebody tells me you know that they want to play on the on the on the pga tour and they're a good college player and they're only hitting you know let's say they're hitting seven seven fairways and they're only hitting 10 greens of regulation i said we got to get your ball striking better or they're having 34 putts or 33 putts around well you're not going to do that you know putting like that so i break it i find their weakness and I say this right. is where we need to fit, what we got to fix. So you 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 assess, you ask them the questions, you find their weakness, and then you go from there. Yeah, uh, and I think that's uh, a great point uh, to make. I, I think you have to first understand the player, um, you know what they're bringing, um, you know to the table, sort of speak, and then you know sort of assess where they want to be, and and then help take them there. Um, you know, through through a lesson plan or a coaching plan. Um, Pete, let's come back and let's talk about the pro golfer. And it doesn't necessarily have to be PGA Pro. It, it can certainly be in some of the feeder tours, um, you know, that, that are uh, there now. Um, and they obviously have a little bit different uh, mindset. You know, they traditionally tend to be a little bit, obviously a little better ball strikers. Uh, and they know they can get the job done, but they have to have goals as well. So from a professional golfer standpoint, what might be some of their short and long-term goals? Well, I think, first of all, the, the short term would be, um, well, you know, depending on what tour they're on, I, I, you know, it might be a whole season, but I think short term is, you know, week to week, they have to be able to, to, to understand, you know, what they need to do uh, to continue to make cuts, um, looking at their stats to get those precise. I mean, they all know how to swing at it. Um, um, some of them uh, do still need, you know, help with what's going on with the swings and the impacts, making sure they fully understand what their coaches are trying to tell them. Um, you know, I, I think to a, a certain extent, you know, sometimes you get these players out of college and they get on one of the lower tours and, you know, 
they're not quite sure if they're hundred percent into what the coach is telling them. And, you know, the, the better they buy in, the, the easier it gets from what I've seen, you know, they really have to just go with what the coaches are telling them. Um, obviously results are going to be what, uh, you know, truly drives it in the end, you know, how well they're doing. But I think on a short-term basis, it's, you know, each week, you know, it's, you know, get to the cut, look at the stats, improve the areas that you can improve. Um, if you're not getting enough greens, you know, look at those situations and why, um, making sure, you know, another part of it is, you know, fitness, health, making sure they're eating right. I mean, those short-term things can really help them, you know, in the long run, what they're trying to do. But, and then from a long-term basis, it's, you know, putting together a schedule for the year and, and looking at the tournament schedule they have to, to make sure that they can, you know, keep their card, keep playing, you know, what am I going to do long-term and how do I want to make sure that for this year, uh, I'm going to be able to pattern this out so that I can, I can play my best and do my best to be able to, you know, shoot the scores that I need to continue playing. Um, you know, I, I think you know, I usually don't try to look, you know, too far beyond that for each year. I, I mean, I know long-term goals could be, I want to win the U S open and, you know, I want to win a major. Right. Um, I understand that, but I think, you know, uh, to a certain extent, the lower tour guys, um, I think they just need to, you know, look at each season and, you know, don't look too far past that. A lot of these guys, I'll tell them, you know, 12 months down the road, I want you to look back. So let's sleep ahead. We're, we're a year from now. I want you to look back and you've had a great season. What did it look like? And tell me, tell me what happened. And if those are the things that happened, how are we going to do from now to that point to get to those things? So kind of on a long term, we can look at it that way. You know, a great season for you would be what? What are you going to accomplish this year on this tour that's going to give you what you need for next year? And then we sort of build those backwards into the practice and schedule of what they're trying to do. So, um, yeah, I, I just I just don't, you know, I think for these lower tour guys, I mean, obviously they're, they're ambitious, they want to move up, but I don't think you can look too far ahead um, until you get there. You know, you gotta you gotta right. be careful you're not looking too far beyond it because it might run right past you and you miss it. So I think they have to, right. you know, just each season at a time take a look at it and and you know go from there. Yep, well said. You know, John. You know, Nicholas often talked about at the beginning of the season. You know, as he was warming up and getting ready to play. Obviously, first and foremost in his his, his thinking uh, was the the four major championships. You know, th- those were what he focused on, um, and and not to play down some of the other tournaments, but they were more or less his practice rounds in preparation too. So he, he chose them very carefully, I'm sure. Maybe not so much early in his career, obviously uh, being a new uh, tour player, he had to have a little bit different schedule. But as he um, got more evolved and developed uh, in his game um, and, and yielded the results, uh, many of the results that he wanted, uh, his goals and, and, uh, and process changed. So from a, a professional standpoint, what are your thoughts on short and long-term goals? Uh, if they're wanting to play better golf, I mean, I'm sure you agree with a lot what Pete said, but uh, are there some other things as well that you're looking for uh, to help some of your better players that whether they have aspirations to, to get out on tour or whether they're currently out on some uh, tour level, um, how do you keep them focused on those goals? Um, I pretty much go season by season. Um, you know, I do want to know their long-term goals. And um, I think those, you know, if you've got a, a 21 or 22 year old kid and he says that he wants to win a major, 
Well, then, then okay, that's a that's a uh, incredible goal to have, and I and I, I applaud you, and I want to be there to help you do that. But uh, here, what is it? What is the road that we need to take? We have to figure out the path, you know, where to, to get you there, and it starts with. Uh, what I believe that you have to do in, when you work with a, a better player is you have to work on their weaknesses. Um, you know, if they already hit, if they hit the ball 330 yards, there's not, I don't need to give them power drills. I don't need to, I mean, if they're going to a fitness person doing all that, they're doing all the right things. Why is it, you know, what is keeping them from getting to the next level? Is it, you know, in their short game or their, um, their iron play? Is it their decision-making? Uh, or maybe they don't have the – they don't hit it 330 yards. Maybe they hit it 270 yards. And they and you know as a, as a teacher for them to compete on the PGA Tour, they're going to have to hit it farther than 270 yards on a consistent basis. So those are the things that I look at. I look at where the, where are the weaknesses, and, and then I'm very, you know, upfront with them. And, um, you know, the work that – when I was working with Bob Sowers, I mean – we would right from the beginning. I mean, he was when I taught when I first met him. He told me one of his goals was to play on the Ryder Cup team. Now this was a guy who's a club professional, and a year later he came in, you know, ninth place in Greensboro. And we worked that year, and it took the first three months. You know, after about a month of working with him, I I, I thought I might lose him as an instructor because he was struggling. But he made the changes that we knew had to be done. And also, I told him he's got to get in better shape. You know, because he was older, he was, you know, he was 39 when he came on tour, and now he's, you know, 50, and he, he played in the senior PGA this year and came in, uh, you know, 25th, I think, or something like that. But he basically has gotten a fitness guy. He's in much better shape, and he's a better player now at 50 than he was at 39. And that's because he took the advice that we, we talked about. He's, he's got it. He never had a trainer. He, he, now he has a trainer. He works with a trainer. So he, he took the, the information that I gave him, and we worked for eight years, and, and he's, he's still one of the top, you know, definitely one of the top club professionals in the country. And, um, and you know, playing, playing out on the Champions Tour when he gets a chance. So he's, he's done really well. So every, every player is different. Um, you know, mm-hmm. with a younger player, you, you just have to, you have to look at, you know, for a younger player who has goals of, that might be 10 or 15 years down the road, but they're, they have big dreams of playing professionally. Um, I think that the best way to do it is to break it down season by season and not get too far ahead. Uh, because, um, like Pete said, if you do, you're going to get caught up in the wave of trying to do too much at once, and then your whole game's going to be gone. Yeah, and I think we, we've seen examples of that, uh, you know, over the year, uh, or over the years, rather, with um, – uh, a lot of our uh, professional players that, that get a little bit too ambitious, a little bit too hungry, if you will, or have some early success, but don't really have a, a game plan. You know, a player that comes to mind very early on was John Daly. Uh, you know, John Daly went out and won the PGA Championship um, and was literally catapulted to the top of the game, um, but then sort of stumbled uh, for several years after. And, and now, you know, you see where he is. Um, to where potentially he could have been. And I think a lot of it was he just didn't have the, the proper guidance or direction. He was a phenomenal player, had a, a, a definite skill set, um, but he had a lot of other issues as well. And, you know, we don't need to get into those, but um, that I think prevented him from having a, a, a much better career 
um, than what he ultimately had. And not to say that some of his career wasn't great, uh, but there was a lot of downside to it as well. And I think it's just, uh, again, a, a, a lack of vision and uh, a pr uh, proper planning. And I think you have to have some purpose uh, in your goals as well. So much like practicing, you have to practice with a purpose uh, and intent and not just sort of say, yeah, I want to win the, you know, next year's Masters, um, but then not really have a plan of how you're going to get there and achieve that. Um, our final question, uh, it was kind of brought up earlier but uh, I want to pose this, and, and Pete, I'm going to come back to you. Um, you know, we have some checkpoints or, or fundamentals, as they're often referred to in golf, uh, our grip and alignment, uh, stance and, and ball position. Uh, are these fundamentals often over, that are overlooked or incorrectly implemented? Um, what are your thoughts there as far as from a player's perspective? Uh, are they uh, more often overlooked? In other words, they're not focused on as much as perhaps they should be in order to improve uh, the, the physical part of their game, uh, or they're just in implemented incorrectly. They're not uh, good sound technique, if you will. What are your thoughts there, Pete? Uh, I'd say, I'd say both. Um, you know, they're, I've always said most amateurs miss hit a shot before they hit it because their, their setup won't allow them to do what they want to do. And so right. I think you have to be able to understand, you know, the setup and, and, you know, what it controls and, and how it controls the impact and how it can uh, uh, help you to get the type of impact that you're looking for. And so, you know, being a, being a long-time John Jacobs guy, grip, aim, stance, and posture, I mean, that's what John, you know, was, was drilled into all of us, you know, getting the right setup. And I know from one of the best things I learned from him is I don't let a player hit until I got them in the position I know they can hit it from. And so it's very important that they learn to get into a setup that's going to allow them uh, to do those things. So I think it's very important. They understand the setup. And as, as you know, the second part of that is they don't overlook it because I think as they play and as they get tired, they, they begin to lose the setup. Now, they don't pay as, as much attention to it. And I think uh, for the better part of a term, they get a little bit sloppy at address. And, you know, so they just can't perform as well uh, as they were as they start to tire. And so, you know, I think it's understanding, you know, the setup initially, and I always tell them, you know, take care of the things that, that are easy to do. I mean, the setup is a learned process. You can learn to yep. set up to it. That's not a hard thing to do. And so you need to take the time to understand how the setup is going to help you to control the ball, but also you have to build that into a routine so that you can stay in that to give you the best opportunity to play your best golf, uh, not only, you know, now, but down the road and understand if you need to make changes or you need to hit different shots, how the address changes will help you to do that to simplify the process to make it easier overall. Yeah, well said. And, and you know, John, just to, to um, touch on Nicholas again a little bit, you know, the interesting thing that uh, arguably was, uh, you know, some might say he was the best, uh, certainly at the very least, he was one of the best players that ever played the game thus far. And what was interesting about Jack was, you know, when he came out at the beginning of the season and uh, was ready to play the, the new year, you know, he didn't, his focus wasn't, well, I want to hit the ball farther this year or, you know, I want to, um, you know, strengthen this or, or strengthen that. He came out and right from the get-go, he focused on the key fundamentals. He wanted to make sure because, you know, the seasons obviously were a little bit different then. They're much longer now than what they were. So, uh, they're playing a little bit more back-to-back. -back. But uh, in his 
day, if you will, um, the seasons were a little bit shorter. So there might be a few months where he wasn't playing as competitive golf uh, as he was earlier. And, you know, you, you get a little bit rusty, uh, even for a player of his caliber. Uh, so obviously the fundamentals. Is this, John, in your opinion, do you agree with Pete in the sense that they're often overlooked or or in, uh, incorrectly implemented or a little both? What are your thoughts? Um, I agree pretty much with Pete. I, the one thing that I, I just think that most most people overlook the setup. Uh, most most amateurs, the one, you know, the greatest or the biggest uh, uh, takeaway that I got in 2008 when I the the when I got to spend a whole year out on the PGA tour, the 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 number one thing that I saw the tour players work on was their setup. Every tour player has alignment sticks. They all use them. And, and, you know, on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when they're really working on their swing, because on Thursday they're warming up and they're going out. They're not, you know, they're not working on their golf swing on Thursday. They're basically, they're just warming up and going out. But they work on their setup. The average golfer rakes the ball over. To, they, they, they hit a ball in the driving range and they rake the ball back, another ball over. They don't even move their feet. They don't back away from the ball. They don't pick out a target. They don't have any idea. They just, it's like, it's like watching a, um, kind of watching a dog eat dog food. I mean, they just go at it a million miles an hour with no thought of, to what they're doing. And, and it's so important, you know, how you hold the club, how you aim the club face, where you play the ball position, your, your knees, your hips, your shoulder line, all of those things go into hitting uh, a good shot and and when tour players get off a little bit it, it, most of their lessons and and their their teachers are working on with them is they get off in their setup and and so um if a tour player gets off in their setup then the average golfer is really going to get off when they when they're playing poorly because when you get out on the golf course you don't have a level lie you don't have perfect lies you have all kind of uneven lies and a lot of times those uneven lies lead to to people moving the ball back in their stance or alignment issues or whatever the case may be. And then that translates into more problems, which just uh, create a compounding effect. So I think that focusing on your setup and having a plan and a detailed plan. And, and if you take a lesson with your instructor, you need to, you need to write down some notes on what it is you need to do in your setup every time. And you need to practice them at home away from the golf course so that when you get to the golf course, it's easy. Because you can learn to do the setup, like Pete said, but you've got to do it every day. It's got to be a habit, just like the same way you brush your teeth every day. You do it the same way every time. Yeah, and and that's just, again, to, to further the point that I was making um, about Jack, is that was why at the beginning of the season, uh, he obviously knew how to hit the ball and, and was able to, to do a lot of the things that he needed to do, but that was a, a, a key for him every season, to get out there and work on those fundamentals, getting his, his stance and his alignment and, and even the grip. I mean, he obviously did certain things throughout the off season, um, and I'm sure he, he played plenty of golf, but it wasn't at the same competitive level. So he knew that he had to, um, you know, refresh himself with, with a lot of these important areas. And I think this, as the both of you have mentioned, this is what uh, a lot of our amateurs can really learn from. Uh, and it's not just about thinking you're doing the grip and alignment. You've got to really do it. And this is where it all boils down to having a good pre-shot routine and something that your coach or your teacher professional can help you put together, um, something that's comfortable for you and something that's repeatable. And then when you're away from that individual, 
uh, you work on those things, whether you're on the golf course or not, uh, or at the practice tee. You can do these, a lot of these things you can do at home. Uh, you don't even have to have a, a golf club. So uh, obviously for the grip you do, but uh, you know you can put some sticks down and some alignment sticks, and they're very inexpensive. You can get it at uh, uh, your local pro shop or, or even some of your your big box stores like uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and things like that. So you know there's a lot of great ways that um, you can improve your game. And I think tonight, guys, I think you would agree we had uh, some teeth in tonight's discussion. I think there were a lot of key points that. Um, I hope will help a lot of the listeners out there. Um, what do you think about tonight's discussion, guys? I loved I it. it. I, I enjoyed I mean, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I, um, yeah, definitely some 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 great points. You know, I think you know as an overall from a, from an amateur standpoint, especially um, some of the professionals might benefit from it. But I, I think of the things we were talking about. I mean, if if you're an amateur player, um, you know, I I'd probably play this segment over again. And listen to it yeah. again, and listen to some of the things that were said in here, because I think, you know, for their games, it's going to be a great benefit for them to understand from the thought process to practice to, you know, goals, you know, all the things we talked about. I think it was, you know, an overall basis was a was a pretty good, you know, summation of what would really help them to improve. Yeah, and, and a lot of times there's things that you know we can't just you know you can't put everything all into uh, a, a teaching session. Obviously, you have to do. Uh, a little bit here and there because obviously the students get overwhelmed. So that's a great idea, Pete. Obviously, you know, we want people to uh, that join us uh, here live. That's great. But for those of you that maybe are tuning a little bit late or even if you did join us live, um, go back at the end of the show and listen to that segment again. The Coach's Corner, we always try to give you some little nuggets here and there. We can't obviously uh, in an hour uh, reinvent the wheel per se, but we try to give you some nuggets here and there, and I think we did a good job tonight, uh, or you guys did a good job tonight. So uh, thank you both for uh, for being on uh, Coach's Corner and, and uh, keep doing all the wonderful things that you guys are doing to help uh, grow this game and to help make it more enjoyable for uh, our golfers out there. So thanks, guys. And uh, very quickly, uh, before I let you go, um, uh, John, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, just let the folks know if they want to reach out to you, how they can do that, and then Pete. Well, Ted, thanks again, and Pete, I enjoyed it as always. Um, there's different ways to contact me. One thing I do want to say is I am doing a podcast with Dr. Angelica Napolitano. It's the Golf Swing RX podcast, the prescription for your game. If you want to reach out to me, uh, and you can listen to that on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud, any of the places you download, um, you can uh, listen to the podcast. Um, also, um, on Facebook, I'm, if you go under John Decker Golf Instruction, I, and I spell my first name J-O-N, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. I'm an instructor with GolfSwing.com, so if you go to GolfSwing.com forward slash John Decker, you can see my videos. Um, and also, my book, Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, um, is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble websites. Perfect. Thank you, as always, John. And Pete, uh, best way for the folks if they want to connect with you as well? Uh, you know me, Ted. I keep it simple, plainsimplegolf.com. All the stuff that you're looking for for what we do is out there. It's the plain is P-L-A-N-E, and so plainsimplegolf.com. You can find me out there and, and uh, you know, see all the things that we're doing. And, again, um, you know, John's always a pleasure to be on with you. And, and Ted, again, thank you because, you know, we say this all the time. I mean, you bring in this – these segments out to the golfing public is really, really helping. So, you know, thank you for continuing to do this. Well, I appreciate it. And I enjoy it always. And 
I look forward to the next time that uh, you guys join me here on the Coach's Corner panel. So have a great week and weekend, guys, and I will see you next time here on Coach's Corner. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dad. See you, John. All right. See you, Pete. All right. That was the uh, guest panelist tonight on the Coach's Corner segment, uh, John Decker and Pete Buchanan, and uh, certainly brought some very interesting discussion to tonight's uh uh, panel discussion, and again, as, as Pete suggested, you know, go back at the end of the show and go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live, or just type in golf talk live. And if you scroll down to the on demand section, uh, you can listen to the uh, archive version of the show and uh, listen to the first uh, hour. Of course, is the coach's corner segment. Uh, certainly, want you to listen to it all of it, but uh, uh, you can replay the uh, coach's corner segment and listen to some great advice. So, for those of you out there that are either new learning the game or maybe you've been playing for a while and you want to give it, as I said earlier, a reboot, uh, you definitely want to uh, tune in and listen to the broadcast. Uh, before I uh, introduce my uh, my special guest tonight, I just want to remind everybody, a uh, great offer by uh, our sponsor of the Coach's Corner panel, GolfSwing.com. Uh, if you want to uh, improve your game uh, and uh, see some great videos in their uh, online uh, uh, training, online platform, uh, online video academy, if you will, uh, just go to golfswing.com and add promo code GOLFTALKLIVE at the checkout and receive 50% off the subscription price. Um, here's a little bit more about golfswing.com. Take a listen. Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? Golfswing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, golfswing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, GolfSwing.com staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at GolfSwing.com. All right, and again, thanks to uh, the folks at GolfSwing.com for sponsoring the Coach's Corner panel uh, segment here on Golf Talk Live. I uh, appreciate it very much, guys. And again, if you want to join uh, their online video academy and learn from some of the best in the business, then sign up today and watch, practice, and improve your game. Uh, simply uh, go to GolfSwing.com and add promo code GOLFTALKLIVE at the checkout and receive 50% off the subscription price. It's uh, well worth it, I guarantee it. And as mentioned here uh, just a moment ago, John Decker is one of the instructors with GolfSwing.com, and he's literally got, uh, I think, a couple hundred videos now, including a signature series on there as well. So uh, definitely go to GolfSwing.com, enter promo code GOLFTALKLIVE, and get 50% off the subscription price. Okay, uh, my special guest tonight, of course, is Greg Ortman. Uh, he's a Ph.D., uh, and uh, PGA uh, professional and golfologist, if you will. Uh, Greg has served uh, the golf business as a player, educator, lecturer, and coach for nearly four decades. Uh, after a successful four-year college uh, playing career, assisting the Slippery Rock golf team uh, to a second-place finish in the NCAA Golf Championship back in 1979, uh, he then turned professional and successfully competed on various golf tours uh, during the 80s. Uh, a near miss, one shot, in fact, uh, to qualify for the 1988 U.S. Open uh, sent him in the direction of teaching and coaching. In uh, 1990, he became the director of golf instruction at the world-renowned Woodlands Golf Academy uh, at the Woodlands Resort, where his uh, research into biomechanics and proprioception uh, established him as one of the top innovative 
golf instructional uh, schools at the time. Uh, he's also the author of a great book called Golfology. Uh, this is actually the third edition uh, printing in 2019. Uh, and as I mentioned, he's a PhD in holistic uh, sports performance uh, in 2012. Uh, he earned that. Uh, his dissertation, The in Integral Golfer, uh, receiving admiring reviews uh, from faculty, professors, uh, for its insight into mind-body uh, networking uh, as a revolutionary concept to learning golf by replacing common sense, misconceptions with golf sense uh, concepts is creating a positive uh, paradigm, if you will, shift to all who attended his seminars, clinics, and schools. Uh, and uh, he's just a, a great guy. He's been on the show uh, it's been a few years, so let me uh, bring him on, and uh, let's welcome back uh, my good friend, Greg Ortman. Greg, welcome back to Golf Talk Live. Hello, Ted. Do you have me? I got you. You're here, my friend. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for the invite. I'm anxious to uh, talk with you again. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, I've given the uh, the listeners the uh, the once over if you will of of uh, a little bit of what you've uh, done and what you're doing and uh, as i mentioned uh, we're we're going to be talking a little bit about the third edition uh, of your book yeah. golfology common sense versus golf sense uh, a common sense approach to learning golf and also i want to uh, let the folks know you're also referred to as the golf professor uh which yeah. uh, i think is well earned and well deserved so let's talk about um First off, um, again, I'm emphasizing this is the third edition. Why did you do, uh, obviously we know why you wrote the, the original book, but what differently did you add? And we'll talk about some of it in a little more detail, but what specifically did you want to sure. do in, with the third edition? Well, the, the first edition, Ted, was a reaction when I was at the Woodlands Golf Academy. And I noticed a lot of, this is before cell phones and anything like that, they weren't in existence. Right. And we would get a number of calls, Ted. What do I do to practice? How do I carry on what I'm doing? How do I – and even though we gave them the notes, you know, I would sit down and start thinking, Ted, what can I do? So I wrote the original version of this, Ted, was the Purposeful Practice Program. And right. it was a practice uh, a manual, if you will, that they could use when they left, the, left school. And when I started writing it, Ted, all of a sudden, it was like my fingers couldn't stop because I wrote a how-to book, how to do this, how to do that. So right. the third edition now, Ted, is more about the whys as opposed to the hows. From 1990 till I got my PhD, I realized that people learn better when they know why as opposed to telling them how, because not right. everybody hears the message the same way. Right, exactly. No, you're exactly right. We all learn differently, um, as we all know, right. some uh, are, are visual learners and, and so forth. So, yeah, there is a lot yeah. um, really to unpack uh, when it comes to learning. And, and here's something, too, and yeah. I, I want to – so we can start the conversation and get right into the book. Sure. Um, there's a lot of hidden reasons why golf – is very difficult for some to learn and let's talk about them i'm going to go down and we'll go point by point but uh and, and you sure. talk about this sure. of course is in in the uh, beginning of the book and and common sense versus golf yeah. sense you know you've got up balance yeah. and down balance explain a little bit first yeah. uh, about that what you mean by that uh for listeners and for me for that matter um just so we can make it a little bit simple for people to understand 
Oh, oh sure, Ted. I, you know, I like to put it this way to make it simple is I was uh, a basketball player in high school and also a golfer. And sometimes those uh, were mutually um, opposed to each other because in basketball, the hoop is 10 feet in the air. So I lived yep. on the basketball court. I lived on the balls of my feet because as a little guy, like I was, I had to jump and, you know, get the, you know, get the, the ball towards the target. Well, what I started thinking when I was at Woodlands Golf Academy is everybody tends to be on the balls of their feet. So when I'm on yep. the balls of my feet, my common sense says if I'm on the balls of my feet, I'm going up. So people who think that they, let's say they lift their head, if they're on the balls of their feet, their natural instinct, i.e. common sense, is to move upwards. Right. But as we know, where is the golf ball, Ted? It's on the ground. Down. Right. It's down. So in order to stay down, your weight needs to be a little bit more towards the heels because if I get on my heels, it's so much easier for my body to perceive down. So a lot of times people are just doing what they naturally feel like they should do. I'm on my balls and my feet. I'm an athlete. I want to get the ball in the air. So I'm going to what, Ted? I'm going to lift up. Right. So if I get them, I found that if I get people back more in their heels, almost like a uh, uh, someone water skiing. So what happens then is, is I do a little test with them. It's kind of fun. And I pull on the golf club and have them try to hold me back. And every time they get in the balls of their feet, what is their first thing they do? They stand up to get back in balance. And mm -hmm. I do mention in the book, Ted, all mistakes in golf start with balance. Because yep. if you're not in balance, there is no way you can make that uh, the symmetry of the motions to get the club back to the ball. It just isn't going to happen. The first thing your body does is what it goes common sensely goes where back in balance. It's not worried about hitting a golf ball. So when someone realizes that more they get back in their heels, the better balance they have to, to stay still, stable, rotary with a non-moving target, a revelation comes over to them that this is really a rotational athletic move without having to move up and down. Because the natural instinct, Ted, common sense, something on the ground, I got to lift up to get it in the air. Mm -hmm. No similar than I have to jump up to get the basketball to the hoop. Right, exactly. And, and you, know, you know, when you look at other sports, like football as an example, you know, we often see, um, you know, coaches will come to their player. They'll come behind their player. And, I mean, they can sometimes, for some players, just tap them, and it's enough to throw that player exactly. off balance. And Correct. so you're exactly right. If you're not in balance, um, your body reacts in such a way that it, it starts to do the opposite. If you're not in balance, it has to find a way to get into balance or back into balance, if you will. So like you said, it, you know, a lot of times if we're lifting up, then we've got to do something else to counter that. And this is where, unfortunately, a lot of players get into to, to problems. So let's go to point number two here, uh, proprioception, if sure. you will, uh, perception okay. versus sure. reality. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Now, proprioception is uh, from the standpoint, Ted, of, uh, let's say, biomechanics. It's mm -hmm. how you perceive yourself in space. 
everybody perceives themselves in space a different way. That's why when we have a uh, lineup of, say, eight students at a, say, a golf school, if you will, then we do them. Every one of them has a completely different perspective of, let's call it this way, I swing shallow, I swing upright, I'm coming over the top, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this. Their perception is really not reality because when we show them on video, and most instructors will agree with this, you show someone right. on video their golf swing, the first thing they say, that's not me. Yep. Because what they perceive, <laughs> you know, subjectively, right. right? What they perceive right. subjectively is not an objective opinion. So that's why I believe video is so important in teaching. But, but the proprioception is when you really believe you're doing something and you see it differently. We'll talk about cognitive dissonance, you know, later. But what happens is your brain goes into a state of confusion or perplexion where I'm going, well, I feel this, but I'm getting this. So especially in golf, because if I may digress a little bit, Ted, Golf is an action game, an action game. Yeah. I have to start the action. Ball isn't moving. I've got to – what? But any other sport, uh, I've given – and I've been fortunate. I've given Major League Baseball players golf lessons, top-notch players. And it's so hard for them to hit a golf ball because it's right. not moving. They can hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball like it's nothing. They can't hit a golf ball sitting still. It's not their fault, right. but there's no reaction involved. So that action, reaction, and I'll give you an example. Hockey players, especially goalies, pitchers, place kickers are extremely, extremely, extremely good golfers. Why? Yep. They set up the action. Okay, so they're tuned, already tuned in athletically, mentally, emotionally, physically, and every other aspect. They're tuned in to providing or initiating the action. So what happens with most of our average golfers, this is foreign to them, Ted. This learning mode that, that, we, that we established and we're having success with is very foreign because everybody goes back to, even if we go back to balance, there's a self-preservation mechanism that if I'm not in balance, the first thing I'm going to do is get back in balance before I do anything else. So that's why a lot of people hit to the ball and not through the ball. Right. And Mo Norman, who wonderfully uh, had an experience with doing golf schools with him back a long time ago in Florida, he said everybody has a hit impulse. Only great players have a swing impulse. And I started yeah, no, thinking he... about all this goes through your mind. Yes. Yeah, no, he was exactly right. Um, and, and that's why he was able to hit the ball the way he was, um, you know, the way he did. It was, yeah, I, I actually had the pleasure not to interrupt for a second, but, uh, just since you mentioned him, I actually had the, the pleasure on two occasions of actually playing golf with him, uh, back when oh, I was back a- in Canada. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he just, in addition to the love of the game, it was just interesting just to watch him, um, because he just did it, you know, yeah. he, he didn't. Yeah. You know, he just knew what to do. He, there wasn't a lot of thought process. He just got up, did what he wanted to do. The ball went where he wanted it to go. And, again, like you said, he, he had that swing um, process yeah. as opposed to that that hit mentality. And um, yes. he actually 
you know, helped me a little bit with my game very early on as well uh, during uh, one of those sessions. So it was very interesting um, that you mentioned him because you're exactly right. Um, I, I want to move on, if we can, just to uh, the next point, and that's the proprioception sure. gap, you know, right. involving nerve uh, impulse and brain Im uh, versus the, the uh, brain impulse. Uh, let's talk about that. Well, oh, thanks. That, that's my favorite subject. Uh, the reason it's my favorite subject, it really is. It's because, uh, and, and I'm going to segue this into uh, something that I did in order after I was working very hard on my PhD and, and studying this. I, I tried to learn the guitar, Ted. Mm. And I, as a matter of fact, I became relatively good at it only because I started to learn something. I learned that there are people out there that at five years old can really play a good guitar. And there's people like me at 60 years old that yeah. still play a pretty good guitar, but we can't get any better. So what happens right. is the reason I say that is I learned the guitar only to figure out what effect that had on learning golf. And mm -hmm. what I established to myself was that, you know, there's a point in time when it's called the implicit memory and the explicit memory come into effect. And let me try to explain that as, as easy as possible. And I'm not trying to use these big words for any other reason, but that's what it's called. The explicit right. memory would be what the muscles are doing. The implicit memory would be what the brain is telling the muscles to do. And unfortunately, and I know I, I found this hard to believe, but science proves it. Believe it or not, our muscle impulses move four times faster than our brain impulses. Now, I'll repeat hmm. that because I want everybody to understand yep. this. Our <laughs> muscles act faster than our brain. So what happens when getting into the golf now? When we practice, and we practice swinging at a full tilt, so to speak, right? Full swing, full yep. speed, we are learning absolutely nothing. Right. Because our brain can't keep up with the muscle motions. But if I swing in slow motion, if I swing uh, where the brain and the muscles can in sync, if you will, let's say you swing at 100 miles an hour, Ted, but now you start swinging at 25, and your brain and your muscles go, wait a minute, we're not going to fight each other anymore. Let's work in concordance because there mm -hmm. comes a point in time, just like with guitar, Ted, when I could play C, D, D, A, G, C, D, D, A, G, when I had to used to think C, D, A, right. G, just like someone learning golf. But here's the, here's the catch, Ted. It's when it goes from the explicit memory to the implicit memory, we have no idea why. Here is the catch. Going from the implicit back to the explicit, really doesn't happen. So what that means is all the stuff that we've learned, all the patterns we've developed in our golf swing, and then we go for a half an hour lesson and expect it to change, um, probably not going to happen, Ted. Not because we're, we're, we're not intelligent people. It's because the brain takes four times as long to learn right. than the mind. And once the muscles are programmed in that auto mode, you know, the auto mode where this is what we do, this is what we do, and then you have the brain come in and say, no, I want you to do something else, 
it takes four times as long for that to happen. And, and, and speaking of this, that's why I'm a, an, an opponent of the word muscle memory. Right. Muscles don't have memory. The brain sends impulses to the muscles. But once you've added that muscle and it keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again, the muscle knows better than the brain, not necessarily <laughs> what's best. <laughs> Let's say for right. a ball swing. You know, and that's why people slice, 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 and they come for a lesson and they wonder why in a half an hour you can't fix their slice. It's not their fault. Their muscles are programmed. But if you would ask them to swing at 25% the whole lesson, they probably wouldn't feel very comfortable that you know what you were doing. Right, exactly. And, you know, it goes to, you know, the, the we've heard many, many times you know, if you repeat something as an example 10,000 times and repeat the same yeah. thing, eventually you yeah. will learn uh, whatever it may be. It could be golf swing, could be anything. Um, and that's Correct. why it takes a cert certain period of time. But conversely, as you're pointing out, if you're learning something incorrectly um, those 10,000 times and then you come for a golf lesson and try to unlearn that, uh, in a you know 30 minute or even an hour session, it's not going to happen, and that's why you know I think a lot of golfers, particularly in that this day and age, um, are very frustrated because they've taught themselves or uh, and uh, no disrespect to our fellow professionals out there, but sometimes they haven't been all. Not all, uh, maybe receiving uh, the the best direction, and they've perpetuated those errors time and time again. And they're just not able to, to change them. And, you know, they hop around and try to find somebody else to change them. And it's not going to happen because they spent, you know, months, days, years, whatever, learning that incorrect right. function, if you will. And you're, you're exactly right. Um, well, well said, uh, Greg. Thank you. Um, so let's now sure. talk about uh, cognitive dissonance, um, our perceived expectations ver versus actual results. What are we talking about here? Well, uh, cognitive distance, and let me give uh, an everyday example of that, and I like to use this in all my seminars. Uh, let's say that you go into an office for 10 years in a row, Ted, and you turn the light switch on. And every time for 10 years the light switch came on, and the light came on and your computer's activated everything. What happens that one time that you turn that light switch on and nothing happens? That is cognitive dissonance. Your brain says, what in the world is going on? For, yeah. you know, 3,000 days in a row, this is going on, this is going on. And, and so you go, okay, i got to re-engineer this. i, I got a pre presentation to do. i got things to get out. My computer's got to come on. So we go into a state, I don't want to call it panic, but we go into a state of we have to re-engineer, and we start, what, pulling plugs out, pushing plugs in, whatever. Okay? Yeah. So what happens in golf is, imagine this, I'm on the first tee. 30 times in a row, and I drive it down the right center of the fairway. The 31st time I hit a big slinging duck hook out of bounds, mm -hmm. and I feel like I made the same swing. The rest of the round you spend on trying to figure out what did I do <laughs> to hit that right. big slinging duck hook. So what happened yep. was your expectation was I always hit the center, right center of the fairway, always right center, a little fade out there. If this one behaves completely different, but it felt the same. 
I did the exact same thing, which we'll get into the thing later. I did the exact same thing, and what happened? Something different. So then we go into what I call the archaeological garbage bag in our head of all the stuff we've read in Golf Digest and the lessons we've taken and everything, trying to prevent that. And six holes later, what happens? We've lost six holes, and we're going, well, the round's almost over. Because mm-hmm. we, we, we couldn't get our brain out of that, what in the world happened on that one swing? So what that basically means is that one swing was an aberration. It, it just happens. You've got to dust it off, and guess what? The fuse was out. <laughs> you know, the fuse went out. You didn't realize the fuse went out. You open up the fuse box, the old fuse box that they don't have anymore, but the breaker went off or something. So the breaker, you flip the breaker, everything's good again. But the last thing you thought about was what, Ted? Better go check the breaker. Right. And that's what typically happens. That's what typically happens on on the golf course with with most people that are you know they they go in and they panic immediately when they hit this aberrant shot, and that and the expected result did not match the perception of the motion. So there's this. It's called cognitive. There's a there's a gap where now how do you fill that gap so that you don't let that gap get bigger each hole where I don't trust myself anymore. And then, you know, you know, it's the dreaded S word that happens one time with some people and they, they can't play golf for a long time. It was an aberrant shot, you know, the rough, whatever it could have happened. So, so the, one of the hardest things about uh, playing the game of golf is that that happens a lot. And I talk about ways in order to uh, diffuse that before the bomb does explode. You know, it, it's interesting you say that because, you know, you're exactly right. You know, how many times we see a player, um, you know, out on the golf course and they have that expectation, that perceived expectation that something is going to happen a certain way. Because, again, going back to the previous point, you know, they've they've taught themselves or been taught to play or do something a certain way and they think that they're doing the same thing and there could be just a, something that's uh, a little bit askew from the first time uh, or the previous time that makes those uh, results different and they can't understand. So they, they end up having uh, what I like to refer to as anxiety. Um, you know, they, yeah. they develop an anxiety and they get that paralysis or uh, paralysis uh, by analysis. They start to the rest of the round. They're not, you know, they're not thinking about okay, what do I need to do on this hole to to get the job done? They're thinking about three holes back when they had that crappy, you know, uh, shot that they just hit. Um, and and this is what really, in my opinion, Greg differentiates the pros is the pros are able yeah. to disengage. They're able to, you know, throw that in the ta- trash heap, if you will, and they move on. And many of our amateurs can't. So um, let's talk about golf learning uh, a little bit. So how do we, how do we learn differently from, from what's been going on? Well, the, one of the things that I've been working on and and a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is leading up into a little more in depth into my next book coming out, uh, Ted, but I'm going to, I'm trying to figure out a, a way of explaining how to unlearn the game in order to relearn the game. Let's say how to unlearn my golf swing before I relearn my golf swing. Because the hard part about this is, as you know, most of us, we learned by ourselves. 
And right. common sense always, always interfered with our golf sense. We struggled with that. We didn't know what it was. We think there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. Golf's just a, a very interesting um, exercise in uh, uh, almost, it's almost like a, uh, may I call it a religion in sense, where right. it, you, you become a, a, a uh, uh, such a devotee to the game that you somehow lose track that it's just a game. And we should maybe take it more that way. And pretty much golf learning is, as I mentioned, the explicit, implicit memory, something like, uh, as I mentioned, the guitar, but I'll, I'll say something else too that I like to use in my clinics is I wonder how many people have ever thought about when they take their first step, does it go with the right foot or does it go with the left foot? Mm-hmm. You never think about that. But one of the things no. that happens, yeah, of course not. But one of the things that happens is let's just say, for example, that I am asked now to, to, you know, to actually go up the stairs. And now they say, well, I notice that you always go up the stairs with your right foot. And you don't think about it, up and down the stairs. All of a sudden they say, now you have to make your first step with your left foot. Wow. Hmm. Yep. Have you ever have you ever tried that? I do that with my, my students, and I have people walking through – people at my clinics are walking through the hallways bumping into each other. But it's kind of funny, and they come back. Yeah, you know, they got the hallway at one of these – at Pittsburgh we did it. I have people bumping in blaming me. They're knocking each other over. But I guess the, the, the point I'm making is once you start learning golf, you're asking someone who's always made their first step, didn't realize it, with their right foot, you're asking them now, I want you to take it with your left foot now. And all of a sudden they feel so uncoordinated that it's almost like nothing can really happen. And once again, it goes back to the implicit explicit memory. My right foot, I've done it so often. The other, another perfect example is how many people have ever driven a car and lost a mile because they're thinking about something else and they're driving. And all of a sudden they go, I don't remember that last mile. And, you right, know, I, right. I mean, obviously, and what, what's going on? Our auto, we're an autopilot. We're an automatic. Um, you know, when someone makes that first step, but now they come for a golf lesson and they say, okay, okay, I know you like to have your grip this way. As soon as you change that grip, you're asking them to step with their left foot. And it's not anybody's fault. I, I Believe me, I'm not throwing any darts at humanity here. It's just how we are. And when you get something that has a lot of moving parts like golf does, Ted, what we have Mm -hmm. to do is break it down to the simplistic. And the simplistic is this is how we learn. This is how I learn. Take a little bit easier on myself and give me a little more time other than 30 minutes. So the unlearning process of, you know, going left foot instead of right foot is more important, Ted, than the relearning process. And that's what I'm trying to say when it comes to golf learning. You know, what's interesting uh, in the previous segment, um, I have a uh, the first hour. I have a, a coach's corner panel, and I have uh, a, a bunch yeah, of my fellow good. professionals. It's very, good. It's very good. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that towards the end we talked about, sort of the and I, I be honest, I, I snafu'd it from your book. Uh, you talked about the checkpoints, you know, the grip and the stance and the posture and that. And I made the point 
uh, about Nicholas. And, you know, one of the reasons he practiced at the beginning of every season, he went through that checklist or that those checkpoints again. Um, yeah. It's not that, that he forgot, but it's just that he wanted to make sure that he was doing them correctly again uh, because it's amazing, you know. You know, especially for for those that uh, are from the northeast and and uh, and maybe some cooler climates in the winter months, that don't play or touch a golf club for several months, and you come back out and you think your grip's going to be exactly the same and your stance and your posture and so on. Uh, a lot can change in in two or three or even six months. Um, and this is why he made a point of doing that. Is he wanted to make sure that he, you know, reminded and refreshed that. Um, that opportunity, if you will, at the beginning of a season to to relearn, if you will, um, some of those key points uh, in, in in his golf game, you know. And, and as I I talked about as well, you know, he wasn't there thinking, well, what can I do this season to, to hit the ball further? No, he wanted to make sure that he was covering his basis, so that when he went out, he had that confidence that he knew that he was doing everything the way it was supposed to be. And so when you look at a player like, you know, somebody of, of Nicholas's caliber or Tiger Woods or whoever you want to pick, that's the reason they work on those fundamentals to the degree that they do. And I think this is why so many of our amateur golfers, Greg, run into the, these problems is they don't spend any time. And and especially if they've ingrained some bad habits, um, they're not able to break them because they don't focus on doing things correctly. Um, for any length of time, they just sort of willy-nilly make changes and and uh, and are in a perpetual loop, if you will, for the next 20, 30 years, and they wonder why their golf games never improve. So, uh, I just wanted to mention that because it was something that we talked about uh, right. a, a little bit. Um, uh, let's go on because I want to give you some time because I know it's something that you want to share with the audience tonight, uh, in addition to talking about the book. Um, let's go to to the final yeah. point here: uh, ritualistic uh, repetitions, uh, ritual versus routine. And what's the solution? Well, uh, I know this is a is not a matter of semantics, and this is a very passionate subject with me. And I, I talk about it at the end of my book, and, and it's a it's a final part of the book when I talk about what what is what can you take from a practice session on the driving range or practice range? How do you take that golf swing to the golf course? And most uh, I mean, there are some un- unbelievable range players. I mean, we talk about it all the time at our golf, uh, you know, academies, where we have people that can hit it right, I mean, stripe it on the driving range or practice range, and they get on the golf course, and after three holes, they're done. Mm-hmm. And if you watch them, you know, I've always talked to people, you watch, I, I say, watch what you're doing, watch what you're doing. You know, they'll hit it, they'll scrape another one, they'll hit it, they'll scrape another one, they'll hit it, scrape another one. When I say scrape, yep. you know, they're putting it down again. Right. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't talk golf and lingo there. But but what happens <laughs> is they never watch the shot. They never watch the shot to the finish, Ted. So there's no feedback. Yep. There's no there's no there's no beginning, there's no end, there's no now. It's all about the future. It's all about the future. There's no start, there's no finish. So yep. if I could uh, make this statement and you, anybody can look this up in the dictionary and I talk about in the book and, and it's, it's very passionate with me. Nobody who's a good player has a routine. They have a ritual and mm-hmm. I can prove that in many different ways. It's not semantics. A routine 
is, let's say I have five things I do every morning, Ted. Mm-hmm. Okay, and after the third, and after the third one, I get a phone call, whatever it might be. The phone rings. I take the phone call. I then what do I do? I go to four and five. Okay. Yep. Name me a golfer who gets interrupted in the middle of his third part of his ritual, who doesn't go back and start again. Right. Nobody. Okay. The difference between a routine and a ritual, a routine is five things that you do no matter what order they are. A ritual is the five things you do. It it can be eight. It can be seven, whatever. The number of things that you do, and they always are repeatable, and if it gets interrupted, you have to reboot and start again. You can tell I'm pretty emphatic about this. And I'll give you a perfect point. If anybody remembers the guy named Tiger Woods who stopped his swing in the middle of his downswing when the Mm -hmm. camera clicked, he didn't keep going, did he? He stopped, he started over, and then hit one of probably one of the best tee balls I've ever seen a human being hit. He he went right back and rebooted and went right through his ritual. Now, if it was a routine, and, and this is not semantics, if it was a routine, he would have kept going, yep. and he did. So yeah, what and happens that, is most people – okay, I'm sorry. No, no, please go ahead. Okay, most people who practice, Ted, don't practice with a ritual. So they don't have the, the, the steps involved. So when they go to the golf course, all the thinking is done before they step onto the first tee. Every shot, all the thinking is done before they swing. They don't have 8,000 things going through their head. When I give a playing lesson, the first thing I watch, does this person have a ritual or a routine? And I will do things, and I will do things, like drop a tee or do something just to see what they do. And I've had some yep. of them look at me and going, I know, you're, I, you're, I'm on you. I got you. Thank you for stopping and starting again. I'll even have a mower come by and have to interrupt them. When I see somebody, they know what I'm teaching out there. I just, I right. just want to see if they're learning that they need. Once your brain gets to, let's say, number five, Ted, what we have to understand, our brain becomes engaged for at the most three seconds in a golf swing, three seconds. It's what we do before that three seconds that sets us up for brain engagement so that the implicit memory can override the explicit memory and the muscles know better than the brain does. You know, I I, I just wanted to add to that point a little bit, and and I think, you know, most uh, of our golfers will understand this and and can put this maybe in perspective. Um, And and actually, you know, really when you think about it from the way you're you're discussing it tonight is maybe we need to rename – the pre-shot routine to the pre-ritual routine, because really that's what you're talking about in, in a lot of sense. Because, you know, most of of our amateur golfers don't do what you just described as an example that Tiger did. For instance, you know, most of our, our you know weekend warriors or everyday golfers that go out there um, might have some kind of a routine that they get into, um, but if they're interrupted, they don't start that whole process over again but yet if you watch um, virtually every player whether it be on the PGA or the LPGA tour 
um, if for some reason they get interrupted, whether it be as Tiger's case with a camera click uh, or something that's distracted them, um, they will go through their entire ritual, as you said, over again. Yes. They don't just, well, I'll just get up to the yes. ball and hit it um, because that's where I was. They will actually go through, you know, pick up a few blades of grass, you know, just, just check the yes. wind again because circumstances can obviously change. And that's a great yes. point because most of our everyday golfers do not, and I can't emphasize enough, do not do that. And if we could teach them to get into yes. that habit of doing that on a regular, consistent basis, I think that they would find, um, and obviously there's some other factors as well, but that would certainly help sure. tremendously. Uh, would you not agree? Well, what, what happens is when you perform that ritual, let's say I do that ritual and I, I'm on the driving range and I go through my ritual and I hit five straight tee balls and I watch them to the finish at 250 yards within 10 yards of each other. And I do that ritual, I have a better opportunity on the first tee of doing yep. the same thing. Because yep. my brain has become engaged with feedback saying, I did this, I get this. I did this, I get We're Pavlov's dogs on the golf course. I, you know, <laughs> I did this, I get this. I did this, I get this. I did this, I get this. Right. I, you know, I said, I thought, okay, that's what we are. We, are. we are no different. So if you continue to do something over and over again in the same manner, and your brain becomes engaged, and you have successes, I guarantee, and I mean, I've, I've experienced it, and a lot of my students have. I had a student today with a wonderful experience, not with me, but in, uh, played extremely well in a, in a golf match today. I'm so proud of her. And, uh, but along those lines, I know she's practicing that ritual. So when she gets up and, and the, you know, the anxiety comes in, and all of a sudden, mm -hmm. it's, it's over because the brain's engaged. And you have the right part of your brain, not the right side of your brain, but the correct side of your brain, which would be implicit, which is the inside of you taking over. It, you, there's, and look, there's nothing you can't accomplish. But when you start letting the, the, the brain get in the way, because remember, it slows the muscles down four times, then all of a sudden that's when balls go right, left, crooked, or whatever. And then, but with the ritual, Ted, it doesn't happen hardly at all. And look at the guys on TV and the girl. You can tell, and I watch, you can tell when they go their, through their ritual too fast, they'll hit it to the right. Yep. When they go through their ritual too slow, they'll hit it to the left. And yep. you can watch. And, I've, and I do that. I study this. And one of the things that, that I'm studying right now, which will be in the next book, is unlearning using ritualistic repetitions to create successful shot making. And, it's, hmm. and, and once you have what I call progressive swing, where you're, you're pretty much, you've got the golf swing, you know what it is. Now you need to develop a brain engagement to where that happens more often. And the guys and the gals on the tour, they're the perfect example of that. And that's why I'm so adamant about calling a ritual. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, very interesting book. Um, and I, I like the third edition here. And uh, we're going to tell them at the end of the, the show here where they can go and, and get their hot little hands on, on a copy of it. Um, but I want to take yeah. just because I, I'm trying to be mindful of our time here. Um, you've got yeah. a, an interesting new and unique uh, new project that you're working on. Uh, tell us about yeah. that, what's going to be involved, and, and where it's going to be involved. 
Well, sure. Thanks. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because uh, uh, one of the most important things that as I'm getting older in in my my days here is to try to uh, re-energize and and grow the game of golf, Ted. Uh, Yep. So what uh, I've I've partnered with a, uh, believe it or not, a a soccer coach. And we Hmm. have a new project that we call the Highlands at North Fork. It's near Johnstown, PA. It's uh, uh, the scenic the scenic Laurel Highlands of Pennsylvania, southwestern mm-hmm. PA, near the highest point of Pennsylvania. And what we did is we took, uh, at this point we were taking, I should say, it's, it's, in, in, you know, it's in, in, in motion. We're taking an 18-hole country club that has been, uh, let's say, devoid of any action for a number of years. Right. And we're turning it into an innovative uh, sports business model, a new model. It's almost like a sports resort where we'll okay. have a, an indoor golf academy uh, with virtual golf simulators and, and my teaching facility indoors. Then outdoors, uh, we, we plan on having a golf academy that has a public practice range and green and, and a learning academy that has uh, practice holes, chipping, pitching, greens, teaching tees, it, where we, would, we want to grow the market. We want to grow these young people to learning how much fun it is to play golf. And then we're going to have the, the bottom nine, Ted. It used to be 18 holes. The top nine is going to be the golf academy. The bottom nine will be a nice, uh, a real nice flat uh, nine holes of golf with tees in Roman numerals numbered one to five. So now there's no mm-hmm. more designation of you know, XTs or whatever. Here's where you play from. Do you want to play from 1,500 yards or do you want to play from 3,500 yards? Pick right. the tees you want to do. And then we have about 500 yards in between each one, Ted. Okay? So you pick. Do you want 35, 3,000, 2,500, or 1,500? And the upper field uh, on the other side, we're putting in, believe it or not, we're putting in uh, soccer fields. Uh, wow. On, the, on those holes that are, that are flat. Uh, tournament soccer fields. There aren't any around that are tournament soccer fields. So we're going to put in a tournament soccer field experience. But the most interesting thing about this, Ted, is, is the reason we really were attracted to the property is because not only does it have a, a wonderful clubhouse where my wife is, is, is the chef, and uh, we're going to have a nice snackery menu, and we're going to have a uh, uh, retail store which is going to be extremely nice. But the thing that, that attracted us, there is a 21,000 square feet indoor tennis facility. Oh, which wow. We're going to do in, yeah, indoor tennis and indoor soccer in the wintertime. So we'll have indoor soccer, indoor golf, and indoor tennis. So it'll be a, real, uh, a year-round facility in an area that probably has four to five months of, uh, we'll call it heavy snow. <laughs> right, being right. Uh, yeah, you know, in the Northeast where we are, but but it'll give everyone yeah. an opportunity to continue to work on their skills. And and if a family has a, a, a son or daughter that wants to play tennis or want to play soccer, want to play golf, we're the one-stop sports shop. You know, in order to right. do that, and, and 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 we're pretty excited that to bring uh, young people and even families, you know, uh, husband, wife, or families into the sports arena, you know, maybe for a couple hours a day, getting us away from the electronics, which you and I are using right now. Not saying wrong with that, but yeah, (laughs) I mean, and and we're thinking, yeah, I mean, we are using that now. So, but, but this sports Academy 
idea. Uh, it almost le- we're a learning first facility, and and we just want to try to grow uh, the activity and in sports because as you know, I'm a proprioceptive guy, and 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 I want people to keep working on their rituals instead of their routines. <laughs> well, you know, Greg, what's interesting. Um, you know, when I was preparing for tonight and I was reading through, um, you know, obviously I've read the book, but uh, also reading through uh, about your, your new venture and project here. What I found very interesting about it is, you know, the industry has seen a lot of changes uh, and certainly um, in, a, in a multitude of ways, but particularly over this last decade, um, there's been, you know, depending on who you listen to, there certainly has been some decline in some areas, but growth in other areas. But I think, yes. unfortunately, there are some in the industry that are slow to change. And yes. I think what the industry has to recognize, um, you know, there's arguments, well, what can we do to, to grow the game? And one of the interesting things about the concept that you're proposing here is as much as we want to grow uh, golf, and I'm certainly all for that, not everybody plays golf. Not everybody has an interest in golf um, from the get-go. So you're offering here an opportunity for, for lack of better words, some cross-pollination because you're offering other things yeah. besides just golf. So, for instance, if, you know, um, parents come and they've got three kids, maybe one's already active in golf in some fashion, but the other two aren't, but maybe one's, you know, interested or both are interested in soccer, they're getting exposed to golf just by virtue yes. of being at that facility. And it gives them an opportunity to say, hey, you know what, I, I've never tried that. Whereas going to a, a traditional golf course, and I'm all for that too, um, if yes. you're not already vested in golf or you're not you know, brought there by your parents or, or friends or what have you, um, you know, people tend to shy away from that. But if you're going somewhere where there are other activities going on, there's opportunity, and that's really what we want in the golf industry, is we want to give people the opportunity to learn this game. And once they do, as you and I know, and they start getting in there, mm-hmm. and, and that's why uh, companies and organizations like Topgolf have done extremely well, even though I know it's entirely different and it's not, quote-unquote, a true golf game. They have brought a generation uh, interested in golf. Now, whether that translates into actual golfers um, we'll we'll still you know wait to see on that, but at least they're mm-hmm. exposing people. Um, whereas the traditional country clubs, they've sort of their business model um, hasn't changed in many many decades, and it, it's really they're they're struggling in trying to find a way of bringing people to the game. So this might be an opportunity for you to really help in a different way by utilizing a facility that's already there and just sort of rebranding and redeveloping it into something that's uh, applicable to everybody, not just the golfers. Well, you know, and I appreciate that you say that, Ted, uh, because the object is there's a lot of people, as you know, that are soccer players that doesn't, don't know yep. anything about golf. And now right. they're going to say, well, I'm, uh, that looks like fun. Yep. And, or a tennis person goes, that looks like fun. And, and yep. we, who knows, if somebody or a family might end up being a golfing family who never thought it would be that much fun because they heard it was this or that or this or that. So our, our mission, is, like I said, is to grow the industry in our area. Uh, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, it's, it's Western Pennsylvania. Most of all, you know, all the major 
uh, mining. We have, still have some coal around here. It's it's a very right. you know it's an area that needs <laughs> needs a rejuvenation. Okay, and right, we exactly. would like to provide information for for young people to grasp onto and find out if this is something they would like to like to do. Because as you and I both know, that when you get into the business world or in the job world, there's not a whole lot of people playing soccer. There is some tennis players, but most people in the business world play golf. You know, my, my little right. pitch for golf. It's always been yep. a good way to network because it's a little slower paced game. You have a lot of time that you can find out what the other person's like and vice versa and do yep. some real good business and, and, and also grow some really good friendships. You know, no, you're exactly right. And, you know, one of the things too, and again, obviously I, I have the luxury um, living in Florida that we're, we're able to play all year round. Um, but there are a lot of areas, uh, not only in, in here in the United States, but obviously in Canada and, and other areas as well. They're a little bit more north. Um, certain part of the, the season, uh, you know, the golfing facilities are, are shutting down because obviously they can't play. And uh, you know, even though there are some indoor opportunities, uh, again, you're, you're you're kind of limiting yourself um, when it's just restricted to golf because not everybody plays golf. So again, you're you're, you're sort of um, and I hate to use the word tunnel vision, but for, for some of the, the facilities not, it's great. I love these academies, but if you're not offering anything other than just golf, uh, again, you're limiting the, your exposure. So I like this concept that you've put together and, and that you and your, your group are, are doing here. And I, I think it's, it's on the right path because I think, you know, and again, that's not, you know, some people kind of shy away and they say, well, you know, I, I'm kind of a traditionalist when it comes to golf and that's okay too. Um, but we have to think of new innovative ways to attract a different market because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we've all got our heads and our phones and our tablets and computers and things like that, and we want to encourage and get people to come back outdoors. Um, and as much as we want them to play golf, they have other interests as well that we're competing against. And uh, so this really, you know, um, I hope that others will, will follow suit in other areas um, and, and look at this as well, because there are a lot of golf courses, as you know, that have closed down um, just because yes. they're not able to, to keep their memberships up. So, you know, this might be an opportunity for somebody listening to the show, and I'm not trying to steal your idea for anybody, but, you know, okay, this is no, something for them, for them to be a little bit um, creative as well and, and not just look at it purely as a golf uh, facility, but as an overall sports facility that also offers some some uh, some great golfing opportunities as well, and to learn uh, some other things along the way. So uh, kudos to you and your team for for putting this together. Thanks, Ted. On just on a sideline, the software that we're using for our simulators is a mm -hmm. sports software. So right. you can hit soccer balls, you can hit baseballs over. You know, uh, the simulators are not just golf. So right. we have, instead of being the golf lab, there is a, is a sports lab where we do our training and we can do golf training, we can do tennis training, we can do soccer training indoors using the simulators. And that was the one thing that really attracted me to this project was the fact that it's so synchronistic to uh, the sports learning that we, uh, you know, alluded to earlier in our conversation, your basketball, right. all of the stuff we do. And, and we're not just limiting ourselves to golf, though we are going to grow golf. I mean, that's my passion and my love. Sure. But helping people learn also is a passion for me 
and, and giving people opportunities to learn another sport is, is really exciting for us to continue with. No, I think that's fantastic. And I think it's, uh, you know, these are the types of things that, that I find interesting, you know, in our industry when, when people, um, you know, kind of think outside the box a little bit and not just, you know, we keep hearing people saying, well, you know, we need to build more courses and we need to do this and, you know, we need to do that or we need to change, um, you know, golf in general. And they're, they're looking sometimes not always in the right place. And, uh, you know, there's been some, some great efforts out there. And, and um, but unfortunately, the reality is that um, it's an ever changing world and there's other things that we're competing against now and a different generation. Um, you know, it's not uh, the typical country club uh, format that we've had for a long time. It, it's uh, There's other opportunities out there as well. So we have to, as an industry, we have to be willing to change alongside uh, some of the others. Um, Greg, where can the, the folks, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming you're still in some early stages here. Uh, for those that may want to reach out and maybe offer some assistance or maybe learn more about that, is there, do you have a website or anything available that they can find out more about this uh, or inquire about it? Sure. sure. Uh, it's Highlander Golf academy.com highlandergolfacademy.com it's one word highlandergolfacademy.com and uh, they can buy a copy of my book on on that and they can peruse that website tells us all about the academy and if you click on highlandersocceracademy.com or (laughs) highlandertennisacademy.com you'll be able to peruse the entire website everything we have uh, that, that we're building towards our opening is April of 2020. Uh, we're okay, having good. our uh, our general membership drive uh, next Saturday, as a matter of fact, uh, where we're having a lot of events uh, showcasing a lot of the changes that we've made to this point. But the golf course has has not been uh, in use for several years, so it's going to take us some time, you know, to get it back up and running. But we're looking forward. I've got a really good superintendent in Charlie Oster, and I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, opening in 2020 in April. Perfect. Well, we look forward to that, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about that at a, at a later point uh, about your opening. I've got a, a really, I think, a very interesting idea uh, to help get the word out there, so I'll talk to you about that in private a little bit later. Um, but, um, okay. Greg, I want to thank you. Yeah, I want to thank you for, for joining me tonight. It's been uh, very interesting. I, I enjoyed and thank you very much for my revised uh, copy of your book. I appreciate it very much. It's been a very interesting read and and um, very insightful. I'm glad that you were able to share uh, some of it with the, the uh, audience tonight. And uh, obviously they can go to that website, but is there anywhere else they can get the book as well? Is it available on Amazon or is there any other locations they can get this book? Uh, right now it's just right on my website at this point. Okay, okay. All right, um, and very quickly, the website again. HighlanderGolfAcademy.com. Perfect. Well, Greg, thank you very much again for for joining me tonight. It's uh, it's good to have you back, and um, I will talk to you, as I said, uh, a little bit later on uh, about your opening. I, I think uh, I've got an idea that uh, might help uh, uh, create some some interest uh, and, and further interest and buzz for that. And we'll talk about that at a later point. But I want to thank you for coming on tonight in Golf Talk Live. Uh, you're welcome back anytime, and and uh, maybe if your schedule permits, I can. Uh, uh, I'm booked up for this season for Coach's Corner, but maybe next year uh, you might be interested in jumping on a few of the Coach's Corner panel segments. I'd love to have you take part. I would love to do that. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, Ted. Anything I can do for you, thank you. I appreciate it. 
All right, I appreciate it. Greg, uh, best of, of luck on this new venture. I have no uh, doubt that it's going to be very, very successful. It's very, very interesting, very intriguing, and I wish you continued success with that and uh, obviously uh, with uh, your book as well. And when your new book, uh, when you get that one done, let me know when you come back on and, and uh, we'll promote that as well. Oh, yeah, that, that's, it's a good one, Ted. <laughs> All right. Uh, sounds good, my I friend. Can't, I can't wait to share it with you. <laughs> All right. Sounds Thanks. good. All right. Well, Greg, right thank up. you very much. Have a great weekend. God bless, my friend, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Our best to you. Thank you, Ted. Bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was my uh, very special guest, uh, Greg Ortman, uh, the uh, PGA uh, uh, professional and uh, golfologist, if you will, and the golf professor. Uh, also, uh, has a uh, PhD uh, in holistic uh, sports performance uh, and uh, just a really nice guy and, and uh, really enjoy uh, the uh, information that he shared with everybody tonight. And also, I want to uh, reach out uh, one last time and thank uh, the guys earlier on the Coach's Corner panel, John Decker and Pete Buchanan, thank you guys for doing a great job always. I appreciate your uh, your thoughts and insight into the panel, and I look forward to uh, being back here next week uh, with another uh, Coach's Corner panel and uh, a very interesting guest as well. So I hope you'll come back and join us. And uh, now uh, I'm going to sign off, and uh, I will uh, see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts. Or listen on any of the following social media platforms. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.